This episode is once again sponsored by the Postgraduate Programme of the Religious Studies Department at the University of Edinburgh. I can personally attest for the quality of the teaching here, as can my colleague Chris. We're both products of it and many of the other RSP people as well. Strong focus on method and theory and fieldwork. Honestly, one of the best top masters and research masters and PhD programmes out there. So do have a look. Now, on with the programme. Welcome back to the Religious Studies Project, folks. I'm Chris Carter, and I'm here as ever with David Robertson. And we've got a new interviewer this week, David. We have indeed. We have Thomas White. Do you know where he's based? Well, he's based at Otago in New Zealand, um, but he's actually been through the Edinburgh system. Um, he was through the Edinburgh system and then through Durham before ending up at Otago. So um, we didn't meet him when he was at Edinburgh, but he's been around. So it's been delightful to meet him virtually, and <laughs> hopefully we'll meet him again at the uh, IAHR in Dunedin in 2020. But for now, he's doing some interviews for us. And this interview he recorded with Wesley Wildman on modeling religion and the integration of the sciences and the humanities in the biocultural study of religion. What on earth does that mean? Let's find out. Hello, I'm here in Dunedin on the South Island of New Zealand at Otago University's recording studios with Professor Wesley Wildman of Boston University. Yesterday evening we had the pleasure of Professor Wildman's delivering of the Albert Moore Memorial Lectures this lecture series celebrating 50 years of religious studies here at Otago University. The lecture title was Integrating the Sciences and the Humanities in the Study of Religion. Professor Wildman has written and co-edited numerous books and seemingly innumerous academic articles and is the founding co-editor of the journal Religion, Brain and Behaviour. He is also the founding director for the Centre of Mind and Culture. Presently, Professor Wildman is also the principal investigator for the Modelling Religion Project, a sub-project under the umbrella of the Centre's broader Simulating Religion Project. Professor Wildman, welcome to the Religious Studies Project. Thanks, Tom. So, I'll start with my first question, if you don't mind. Professor Wildman, I understand that you work in the relatively new field of the cognitive science of religion. Could you please give a brief summary of basic methods and principles that characterise this approach to the study of religion? Sure. First of all, I'm a philosopher of religion by native orientation, and I specialize in the scientific study of religion, generally. And I would describe the area of my work as in the biocultural study of religion rather than the cognitive science of religion. Cognitive science of religion as a name for an activity has become broader over time, having less to do specifically with cognitive science and more and more to do with integrating information coming from both the biological sciences and the sciences of culture. Most of the things that we care about in religion involve both the sciences of cognition and the sciences of culture. So we care about minds and brains and how they work, and we also care about the way these things in collectives produce emergent phenomena of great interest to us at the cultural level. Keeping both sides, culture and cognition, together is crucial for being able to get anywhere in understanding these complex things. That's why the Centre for Mind and Culture has the name that it has to indicate that it's biocultural in orientation. And the religion work that we do through the Centre, uh, which is done through the Institute for the Biocultural Study of Religion, focuses on that phrase biocultural. Now, the methods that you use then are extremely diverse because the sciences of cognition and culture cover a tremendous amount of territory. I don't know if it's worthwhile listing methods, but the point is... Sometimes you're doing qualitative research, that's in-depth studies of particular groups of people. Other times you're doing demography or 
social science type statistics gathering. Still other times you're working on interpretive aspects of the social sciences and uh, religious studies. And on the other end, you're doing neuroscience studies, uh, maybe eye tracking or neuroimaging, or you're doing psychological surveys or doing medical tests to see how people respond to various conditions that might be related to religion and so forth. The point is that all of these methods are available and you use whichever methods are most useful for making sense of the problem that you've decided to tackle. And the fundamental principle is that you tackle those problems in a biocultural way. Terrific. Thank you. That's a tremendously comprehensive response. That's great. And of course, this ties very neatly into the topic of last night's lecture, integrating the sciences and the humanities in the study of religion. Could you perhaps please explain to our listeners your argument for why the study of religion really demands more engagement from an empirically scientific approach. One of the fascinating things about the study of religion is how fast the empirical sciences have been making their contributions. Usually from outside of the traditionally humanities religious studies area, people are making contributions on religion coming from anthropology departments or sociology or psychology or medicine. The largest area is medicine, but the others are quite large as well. The growth of literature, which uses scientific methods of the empirical kind, has been phenomenal. And now more than half of the literature produced in the study of religion every year comes from people who are using scientific methods. So at the most basic level, religious studies needs to know about what is known about religion. And so much of that's coming from people using scientific methods that it's just you can't keep up with the field unless you know something about what's happening on the scientific side of things. But there are other reasons as well. There's a lot of particular problems or research trajectories within religious studies where if you don't have the scientific input, you're really missing the point in a certain sense. For example, if you want to try and answer the question, where does religion come from? or where does belief in ancestor ghosts come from, or whatever it is, any type of question having to do with origins, you cannot address that question responsibly unless you deal explicitly with evolutionary questions, evolution of cognition, evolution of social patterns, and so forth. Or if you want to deal with questions like intense spiritual experiences, it's impossible to deal with that question without paying some attention to the psychological sciences and what the neurosciences have to say about the way brains process information and produce subjectively intense experiences. So there are just a couple of examples, but the general argument there is that religion is extraordinarily complicated as an object of study. Lots of disciplines are involved, and if you limit yourself somewhat arbitrarily just to a certain subset of those disciplines, you'll pay a price. This also ties into the other point you were making during your lecture, where you are at pains to point out that an exclusively scientific approach is also, to some degree, equally weak, and one that is lacking significant humanities input is deeply problematic too. Could you elaborate on that? Certainly. There's a fairly depressing experience that, as editors of Religion, Brain and Behaviour, we have quite often, and that's reading papers that don't seem to benefit even a little bit from the history of the study of religion on the humanities side. People operationalize religion in a way that makes zero sense against the history of debate of that question in religious studies. Or they have what I would call wooden interpretations of something that's extremely subtle. For example, the subjective experience of feeling guilty. That's enormously complicated and you can get very wooden takes on that in the scientific work at times. So you've got this problem that 
when you just start deciding as a scientist that you're going to study religion and you're not going to pay attention to the subtle readings, contextual sensitivity, historical awareness and so on that humanity scholars bring to the study of religion, you end up reinventing the wheel. It's not efficient and of course you know when you're as good in your interpretive skills as those people who've been generating the deepest understanding of religion for the past hundred years or so. So you just wind up reinventing the wheel badly. What we stand for in religion, brain and behavior is trying to force people submitting journal articles to be excellent on both sides or at least adequately aware of both sides of the humanities and the sciences. Very strong arguments here for greater collaboration between the two disciplines or the two areas of the academy. What would you say are the main challenges that are holding back collaboration between the sciences and the humanities in the study of religion, whether these be institutional or ideological Yes, it's not easy putting them together. I I think the most important fact here about collaboration is that it is quite natural when it happens. People who actually work on both sides, usually in teams, of course, because it's difficult to be expert in both, right? So you have humanities people and science people working together in teams. But those collaborations typically work brilliantly. There doesn't seem to be a conceptual issue once Mm -hmm. you actually get into it. But there are fairly significant impediments to getting started. The first thing is insecurity, I think, on the humanities side. I don't know anything about the sciences. How can I do anything using the sciences? That comes partly, I think, from imagining that the humanities person is supposed to be in complete individual control of everything that they do. But we found that that's not the way the best work happens. The best work happens in teams. So what's required is to learn how to work in teams. So you represent an area studies person, so you do South Asian Buddhism or something. You work with a cognitive psychologist, and the cognitive psychologist has to be open, just like you're open, to a collaboration, working together, and you really get somewhere that way. So I would call that a practical problem, not an ideological problem, Mm -hmm. and it might be the largest impediment. But there are ideological problems as well. There are people on the humanities side, especially with the so-called crisis of the humanities, that are deeply concerned about the way research universities are focusing all of their efforts, money and attention on the STEM subjects. And of course, the humanities get held in stasis or they shrink slowly over time while that happens. And you can feel as though the prestige that you had in the university context has been turned over against your will to the happy scientists who hold the uh, hegemony these days. Therefore, you certainly don't want to invite them into traditional humanities territory as in the humanities study of religion. That is an ideological argument. I think there's a real concern, but the way to solve the problem isn't to keep the sciences out because that interferes with the quality of the research. It's to show that the humanities are necessary for scientists to do excellent work. And that was the point I made in the previous question. That's the way to defend the humanities in the university. You can't do excellent work in any field, including in the sciences, unless the humanities are active in helping people refine their interpretations, maintain their sensitivity to context, both cultural context and historical context. I do think there are ways of steering around that ideological worry about science taking over everything Mm -hmm. by arguing, going on the attack basically, and arguing that the humanities are essential for excellent science. On the science side, there's also an ideological thing that's something more like neglect or arrogance. We don't even understand what those humanities people are doing. We're the ones who bring in all the money and do all the work, so we don't need to pay any attention to them. That's just intellectual laziness. But the way to solve that is to confront scientists with their mistakes, with the superficiality of their analyses. And humanities people are in a very good position to do that, to demonstrate their importance in the scientific endeavour. 
Once those two forms of ideological resistance are mitigated, then there are fewer impediments to actually getting started on forming teams and doing research. And after that, it happens naturally. Sorry to interrupt the episode, but we just wanted to let you know to remind you about our Patreon link. The Religious Studies Project has always been free since its inception, but we know that there's a great problem in academia with uh, people not being paid for the work that they're expected to do, particularly early career scholars. And we at the RSP want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So you can help if you can spare even one pound a month by going to patreon.com slash projectrs and subscribing. We know that these podcasts are very useful for people who are teaching and people in their learning. So if you can help either by subscribing there or by making a one-off donation using the PayPal button on our website, it would be greatly appreciated and will help us keep bringing you this podcast for free and fight against exploitation in academia. But now, back to the episode. And of course, thinking about the, the cultural nuances needed to be raised and brought to the attention of more scientifically practiced academics. For me, this brings us towards the territory of religion as a cross-cultural category, a category that presumes to precisely and usefully identify beliefs, experiences, and behaviors in various cultures across the planet with validity and offer them as of a kind. And of course, this has been critiqued by Fitzgerald, the critical religion group formerly at Stirling University, and many others in the Assadian school. How does your approach seek to address or respond to both the concerns of analytic accuracy and ethicality underlying this critique that the category of religion elides crucial cultural difference and reinforces colonial power structures? Every category that human beings build is built. That sounds like it might be redundant, but it's a very important point. Everything we do in the academic world, everything we do when we categorize anything, is built. Even species designations are built. The concept of a natural kind is a built concept or a socially constructed concept that actually is very difficult to realize in the crisp and clear way that it promises to be applied to the real world. So we're in a world where we build categories, we construct ideas and we apply them to things. Every single time we do that, we're going to be generalizing. When we generalize, every single time there are going to be stress points where the generalization does not fit the data. We need to be on the alert constantly when we build categories for the side effects of building them. We're cognitively lazy creatures on the whole, so we tend to get deeply attached to the categories that we build rather than to the phenomena they are intended to describe. That's where we really start to have problems because we're being attached to an abstraction that distorts the thing that we're trying to talk about. So there has to be a constant conversation going on between the construction of a category on the one hand and the connection to details, contexts, periods and so forth on the other hand. When that conversation's going on, you actually check the dangers of generalization and in a certain way unleash generalization and make it useful for the academic study of whatever it is that you're looking at. So that's a general principle that I present in my theory of inquiry, which has to do with the legitimacy of generalization and its dangers and how to manage the dangers in order to make generalization useful. So it's against the background of that framework that I would say religion is a classic example of a category that's socially constructed, sometimes to serve political purposes, but the generalizations that lead to distortions in the use of the word religion can also be checked. They can be criticized. They can be managed in a certain way so that you can continue to make the generalization if there's a reason to do so and use the category of religion without ever falling prey to the delusional thinking associated with believing that you didn't build the category in the first place. 
The particular schools you mentioned, I think, oversimplify the history of the concept of religion. Plato talked about religion and he was thinking comparatively. Whenever there's more than one group of people who are doing something similar that we'd be prepared to call religion now, there was stress to try and understand comparatively what was going on. You see this in Chinese debates between Confucians and Buddhists and Taoists in ancient China, and you see something similar in South Asian contexts. So people, whenever you've got any type of pluralistic setting with things that we might be prepared to call religion, you actually see the emergence of categorizations that allow people to say, well, these things are of a kind. It's not just colonialist invention. The latest version of it in the West has been a colonial invention. There's no question about that. But that's not the only way the word comes up or the idea comes up in the history of human thought. Again, what's happening there is people need to draw generalizations to understand complex things. And those generalizations will always distort. Therefore, they always need to be managed. Same principle applies today. We can keep using the word religion if we want but we have to take responsibility for doing so. That's where the ethical side of it comes in. It's the taking responsibility for the generalizations that we use in academia and in the general discourse about things in the world. Taking responsibility means checking what the distorting side effects might be of our use of language and consequently making adjustments where necessary and sometimes abandoning words altogether. Thank you. That's a formidable response. Now, let's move on to your research that's ongoing at the moment. As I mentioned earlier, you're the principal investigator for the Modelling Religion Project, which sits within the broader Simulating Religion Project being run by the Centre for Mind and Culture. So, starting from the top, what does simulating religion entail? Uh, What does it offer? And uh, what are its limits, if any? Well, it's plenty limited. That's a very good place to start, in fact. If you're thinking about using computers to create models and run simulations related to religion, there's a whole bunch of limits that need to be confessed right up front. The beautiful simplicity of a feeling of peace that someone has in a religious ritual, we can't express that in a computer simulation. We just can't. So there's no point in trying to do that. We're already sharply aware of so much that we can't do when we try and use computer models to simulate religious social processes and psychological processes. If that was the only thing that mattered, you'd never bother with computer engineering at all. You just wouldn't go there. But it's not the only thing that matters. There are a whole bunch of things for which computer modeling and simulation turns out to be extremely useful. So you judge whether you use those techniques based on whether you can get anywhere with them. It's a practical reason to use them. So we're not trying to pursue any agenda here. We're not having, we don't have an ideological computers will take over the world perspective, nothing like that. All we're trying to do is to use methods that are useful. Why would they be useful and in what context would they be useful? To begin with, it's quite common to find academics fighting over things. They have got competing theories. So, so often the theories aren't capable of being tested or really directly compared with one another. So you wind up having interminable fights, like historians trying to decide about the spread of violence in the Radical Reformation. Did it come through congregational lineages or was it spread horizontally by firebrand traveling preachers, you know? Well, that fight's been going on for hundreds of years. Can you resolve a fight like that? Could you use computer analysis or other techniques to be able to resolve a fight like that? We found that you can, that you can build models of both horizontal transmission and vertical transmission of violence in uh, among the Anabaptists, and you can produce support for one of those hypotheses that's stronger than support for the other. 
Now, that doesn't prove anything, but it shifts the burden of proof. What we found when we actually did this study was that vertical transmission is stronger than horizontal transmission. So if you've got an historian who wants to argue for horizontal transmission, Mm -hmm. they have a larger burden now because of the work that we did, a larger burden to show that they're right despite the fact that this group showed that vertical transmission is stronger. That's an example of bringing in a method when it's useful to help with an intractable inquiry. Other kinds of intractable inquiries are important as well. If you're trying to think about the way people deal with religion in modernity, the way it arises, the way they have experiences, the way they have beliefs, the way secularization impacts them, the way a thousand other factors, economics, healthcare, affects the way people uh, operate religiously. If you want to understand that, there are an awful lot of theories out there that have been offered to help do that. And some of them are conflicting with one another. For example, you've got the Stark-style supply-side economic-style theories of religion versus the demand-side theories that are pursued by lots of other people. That conflict, is it a fight-to-the-death conflict? Is one of them going to be right and one of them going to be wrong? One of the brilliant things about computer modeling is that you can build models that incorporate both of those viewpoints together. Of course, not in the same respect, because there's a genuine conflict between the two of them. But if you've got a supply-demand type setup in your computer model, it's obvious that there could be demand factors, and it's obvious that there could be supply factors. There's no problem putting them together. But you need a complex structure to express conceptually precisely what you mean by combining those two theories, so that you can see how they are actually, or could be actually, consistent with one another. Now, after that, what you've got is a model that you could run against data. If you can produce better predictions of data using your combined model, then you've succeeded in transcending this fight to the death between supply-side and demand-side people, theories about religion and modernity. It's when it's useful that we go there. And when it's not useful, we don't try. Yeah, it sounds like there's quite a lot of rich and important work to be done in that field. Where do you see the modelling approach in the study of religion transforming in the future? What, What do you think its ambitions ought to be? Well, for one thing, they should be modest uh, because it's a hard road. The collaboration involved in making this work is quite extreme in a certain sense because you need specialists associated with any particular model that you build. Uh, You need generalists who know about religious studies uh, in general from a humanities perspective, for example. You need computer engineers who are actually going to build models. It's hard to organize groups of people like that. It takes a lot of energy and actually, frankly, a lot of money to be able to pull it off. So the first thing is to be cautious about claiming that too much will change in the future. But there's something about computer modeling that's generative. It's been called the key to generative social science. Mm -hmm. Because it generates new ways of thinking, it generates new hypotheses for testing and so forth. It produces results that are surprising sometimes, that you weren't ready for. You're very often coding low-level behaviours and interactions between simulated agents, like people, Mm -hmm. or sometimes groups of your agents, but whatever. You're coding at the lower level how they relate to each other and how they think in their own minds, how they process information how they communicate, and you validate that against experimental work in psychology of religion and sociology of religion and so forth. Then you run when you run a simulation, these interactions combine in a complex system to produce emergent properties. Those emergent properties aren't coded in at the bottom. They come mm-hmm. out of the system. And it's the emergent properties, of course, that you really care about because they're the things you've got high-level data on, population data. You can test the model to see whether the architecture you built at the low level is any good 
by looking at what emergent features it produces. Can, can you give an example, like a solid example of something you've worked on that kind of represents that? Sure. Think about mutually escalating religious violence. Two mm -hmm. groups that have religious impulses and they're trying to, they use those impulses to motivate and to rationalize the violent behaviors that they engage in. Sometimes this produces mutual escalation. One group hits, the other group hits back harder and so forth it, until you get to a certain threshold and then everyone takes a breather and it calms down again for a while. We've been able to produce mutually escalating religious violence in a computer model, but not by programming it in, rather by defining the relationships among people as they interact with one another, with insiders in their own group and outsiders in a threatening outside group. Those programmed-in behaviors at the low level don't predict anything at the high level. And yet what we do get is mutually escalating violence with cool-down periods. That emergent feature, mutually escalating violence with cool-down periods, can be compared to actual historical episodes. Mm -hmm. And we've used the Irish Troubles, uh, the Gujarat riots and various other things uh, to try and make sense of what's going on there. So that's one of the pieces that's in publication at the moment. What's really going on there is that you've got a complex system in the real world that connects mind, lots of minds, and culture, say, emergent features such as violence. Yeah. Those connections are very complex, too complex to understand analytically. So you use another complex system to model it. That is, you build a complex system mm -hmm. in a computer to get a handle on the complex system in the real world. And that's what produces generative social science, new hypotheses that you couldn't get a hold of any other way. You can solve problems and tackle research problems using computers, even in religious studies, that you can do in no other way. Thank you very much. Professor Wildman. One final question. For younger scholars and students inspired by the application of computer technology, those are digital natives coming up through their careers, and the greater use of scientific approaches in the study of religion, what advice would you give to them in terms of the skills and knowledge that they should really seek to be developing in preparation for a career in this field? When we look for collaborators, it's easy for us to find people in computer engineering who have some interest in religion. They don't know anything about the study of religion, but they're fascinated by religion, even if they're not personally religious. So finding people who are excited to take on this kind of research turns out to be very easy. The danger there is that if someone is like that, and they run off and try and do that research by themselves, they'll be operating in the dark. They won't be aware of what religious studies really means from a humanities point of view. So they really need to find collaborators. Mm -hmm. And on the other side, when people, maybe they learn programming in high school or something, and they're coming through doing a PhD or a master's degree or something in religious studies, and they're thinking, oh, wouldn't it be great to do modeling and simulation? It's actually extremely technical. And just because they know a programming language, it might not be quite enough. They also need to make teams. In general, my advice is find teams. Don't suppose that you can be expert at everything, but rather collaborate with people who can provide forms of expertise that you don't already possess. And you can contribute your own forms of expertise and learn a lot in the process. Now, there are other things you can do, like look for high-level graduate training where you get trained on both sides. That does exist. It's not mm -hmm. very common, but there are a few places that do that. But I think fundamentally anyone can get started on this so long as they're thoughtful about finding teammates to work with. These days, the scientific study of religion is a team sport. Inspiring stuff. Okay, well, thank you very much, Professor Wildman, for joining me this morning. And yeah, really enjoyed your lecture yesterday evening. And thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. An excellent first interview, and we're looking forward to hearing more from Thomas White in the near future. 
Thanks very much, Tom. Another new face. Listeners and followers on social media might have noticed a slight new flavor to our social media posts. Uh, of course, David, myself, Tommy still occasionally post the odd thing on there. But we've got a new social media editor. That's Ray Radford at the University of Sydney. Indeed. One more strong editorial member of the team, which is really doing great work this year. We also had some of our editors over at the EASR recently. Yeah, we did. We had Hans van Eigen and Hannah Letten, and Hans has done a couple of podcasts for us, and he's written some responses for us, so you'll know his name through that. And Hannah and was one of our editorial team members a few years ago, and has been a sort of a written contributor and an audio contributor. And I remember particularly our 2013 Christmas special in Liverpool, uh, where she was part of the Finnish contingent. There, <laughs> they came all the way and only <laughs> and went out in the first round. I know. They've been at the ESR, which was in um, Leuven, and they've got a couple of interviews coming from that. So thanks to the ESR for putting up with them, and thanks to them for putting up with the ESR and getting us some podcasts. It's really, really good, so we're looking forward to that. We are starting a brand new series next week entitled Religion and NGOs. Now, this has been put together and organized by our Michael Fiener, and it's supported by a grant from the Henry Luce Foundation. This is going to run for the next, on alternate weeks for the next eight weeks. So there'll be four episodes in total. And the first episode next week is entitled Muslim NGOs and Civil Society in Indonesia. An interview with Robert Hefner, and that's by Catherine Shear and Giuseppe Balotta. So do come back next week for that. And as ever, folks, thanks for listening. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. Brought to you by Founders and Editors-in-Chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and Managing Editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Jonathan Tuckett, and our opportunities digest by Yana Shirley. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, with audio assistance from Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, and sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop. Don't forget, you can support the project using our Amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links, or by donating at patreoncom projectrs And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google Plus, YouTube, iTunes, and other portals.